From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Lizzie Watson. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I'm a staff attorney with the ACLU's Reproductive Freedom Project and your host for the next few weeks. I'm so excited to be here. Just weeks ago, Justice Stephen Breyer announced his retirement from the Supreme Court, opening the door for President Biden to nominate a new judge to the bench. Keeping his campaign promise, Biden confirmed that he will be nominating a Black woman to replace Breyer, a historic move for a field that has not always welcomed Black women with open arms. Joining us today to discuss the impact of this future nomination is Rhea Tabakomar, director of the ACLU's Women's Rights Project and one of At Liberty's most frequent guests. Rhea leads the project that was founded and led by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and if that's not a prophecy for Rhea's future, I'm not sure what is. It should be noted before we begin this conversation that as a matter of policy, the ACLU does not endorse or oppose particular candidates for the Supreme Court, except in extraordinary circumstances. With that, Rhea, welcome back to At Liberty. Thank you so much for having me back. So I wanted to start by just acknowledging how historic and meaningful this news is. I know when I heard the news, I was pretty excited, like my friends and I actually went out to celebrate. It kind of reminded me when everyone started to realize that Barack Obama could actually become president of the United States. People talked about it as a possibility, like one day having a black president sometime in the future. But now that day is here, or in this case, now that day is near. What was your experience? I'm so glad you started out with joy because I found myself actually surprised by how joyful I felt when I heard this announcement. One of the very first news stories that I saw on Twitter uh, was a piece from Bloomberg Law. And I remember that it was from Bloomberg because they had uh, put together a graphic of some of the top contenders for the replacement for Justice Breyer. And seeing the graphic, uh, actually just thinking about the graphic now, moved me to tears. I realized I had never seen a graphic that was all Black women uh, for something that was an honor in my entire life. Um, and I, I, when I tell you I downloaded that picture, it was on every group chat, every test, on, <laughs> me- on Messenger, on WhatsApp, on my groups, um, just sharing the joy. And, and not only the joy that it was all Black women, but so many truly excellent Black women, right, that were at this moment in time when there were, uh, you know, enough serious contenders to truly fill a graphic um, with gorgeous, respectful photos just showing their excellence and their brilliance. The folks who are, you know, currently on the bench, pictured in their robes, uh, looking uh, super judicial, and it was just gorgeous. And like real people, it's like black judges, not just for law and order, like here in the <laughs> in the real world. So I heard a comment from Angela Owachi Will, the dean and professor of law at Boston University. She said that this nomination in particular will bring institutional legitimacy to the court. I'm curious what you think about that. Does having a Black woman in particular on the court legitimize the institution to the people it serves? There's a lot to unpack in that comment, Lizzie. We have to just acknowledge you're asking this question at a moment when the court's legitimacy is in true peril, as Justice Sotomayor has recently uh, said as much from the bench Uh, with its sort of openly partisan uh, decisions disregarding precedent um, and uh, using procedural mechanisms to make truly momentous and, you know, nation-altering decisions without sort of the full process um, and airing those arguments and positions in the light of day that we've come to expect. So we are at a real moment of potential crisis for the court. Can any single jurist alone uh, 
you know, survive the stench, to use Justice Sotomayor's words, um, I don't know. But is this an important and critical step anyway? Anyway, absolutely. I mean, Black women only make up 2% of the legal profession, which is a very small and distressing number. Yet at the same time, we've had 115 Supreme Court justices over the 200 years that we've had a Supreme Court. So I think we're due by my math for at least two Black women, uh, overdue (laughs) for at least two Black women, even if we were simply going to represent ourselves um, to the extent that we've been uh, represented in the legal profession. Sandra Day O'Connor, when President Reagan uh, announced in 1980 that he would nominate a woman, uh, the first woman for the Supreme Court, if he got the chance, he did that because he knew uh, the representation matters, that it was a problem that we had nine white, uh, that we had nine men, you know, sitting on the highest court in the land. I often think about, you know, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg during her ACLU years, um, arguing about entrenched gender stereotypes and sex discrimination, you know, to an audience of nine men. Uh, and this is a real opportunity to change that. Oh, yes. Thank you for like unpacking that question. I thought that too, and I love when I was reading the comments from the professor, like, can anyone legitimize the institution? Right? Can any one person like uh, legitimize the institution? So I'm I am so glad that you that you raised that. And also, like, I just think it's amazing. I mean, we're both black women lawyers, but like 2% of the profession, 100% hot topic of the moment, black women lawyers. So I'm going to, I'm going to break down some numbers for a little bit. So there are 1,395 sitting federal judges. 56 of those judges identify as black or black or multiracial women. So that's 4% of the entire bench. Of those 56, 36 were nominated by Biden or Obama. So this is a rather recent jump in the numbers of Black women on the on the federal bench. So currently, a total of 114 federal judges are women of color, making up just over 8% of the total federal bench. Judges who identify solely as white make up 78.5% of the federal bench, compared to 61.6% of the total U.S. population, according to the 2020 census. So what do you hope having a Black woman on the highest court in this country will do for the advancement of other Black women in the legal profession, notably, as you said, one of the whitest professions out there? I think it makes a huge difference when not just Black women are solved, but when other people can actually imagine us as a Supreme Court justice. You know, I think I've had this experience. I think every woman lawyer I know has had this experience, and I'm sure you have, Lizzie, too, of, you know, walking into a deposition or another professional setting, and immediately the question comes, like, are you the court reporter? Are you the intern? Where's the attorney for Mr. Jones? You know, and you're thinking— I'm the attorney for Mr. Jones. I'm sitting right here. Um, and, you know, there's a way in which these experiences have become um, so normalized that I think we, you know, we we build our armor around them. And in fact, I like to think about it as a superpower, right, that other people underestimate me in those settings. And it's my superpower is actually I'm secret, a real grown-up lady lawyer, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a terrific job. But at the same time, obviously, those cutting comments and those assumptions really reflect our norms about what it means to look like a lawyer, what it means to look professional. Uh, you know, it's about race, it's about gender, it's about uh, hairstyle, it's about gender identity, it's about the way we dress, it's about all these things taken together. And so to have a Black woman in the Supreme Court really changes that picture of what does it mean to look professional? The fact that we even have a well of Black women for Biden to choose from who are currently on the bench, I think, reflects such tremendous work both by President Biden and President Obama. I think the ability for us to see ourselves and for other people to see us um, in that role is just really transformative. 
I have definitely, I've definitely had those experiences. And even like just as a woman, like sometimes you're like in a stressful deposition and you're sitting there and you're like, I just need a moment to be alone. You could go to the women's bathroom during a break. You'll probably be absolutely alone. There will be <laughs> like, cause you're probably mostly with white men in that room. No, and to hear you say the number 114 you just said, Lizzie, which uh, is not a number I'd heard before. And of course, it just immediately struck me because it's so close to a number that I just said, right? The number 115, that's the number of Supreme Court justices we have, right? Like we know there are enough of us to actually have served as every Supreme Court justice in the entire Supreme Court's history, right? But now it's time for the rest of the country to find out. Absolutely. So... We know that given the makeup of the court currently, it's unlikely that whoever President Biden nominates will really be a swing vote or enough to create a real balance on the court. This justice will likely be the author of many dissents, perhaps participating in a role similar to what we've seen Sotomayor take on in recent cases. Now three women will be holding down the more liberal side of the bench. What message do you think that sends? Well, and sort of the most uh, obvious level, right, it shows the court's open disregard for the rights of women in this country, which have been made so transparent during the SBA litigation. The way the court uh, responded to, for example, the pandemic restrictions placed on medication abortion and not on other medications used by men. The way that the court allowed, you know, the execution of Lisa Montgomery, for example, to move forward, the first woman to be executed by the federal government since Ethel Rosenberg. I mean, we've seen this court for some time show a real disdain for the lives of women in this country. And to have it be three women who are uh, in a position to name that you know, from the court itself, I think is really amazing. There are so many different ways to be a woman justice, just as there are so many different ways to be a justice. And I think having three hold down this part of the court uh, really creates additional space for each justice to find her own voice and to find her own role. Professor Melissa Murray, who uh, teaches at NYU Law, wrote a wonderful piece um, about Justice Sotomayor after the arguments in SB8, where she talked about her really as being a truth teller, as someone who uh, knew she didn't have the votes of her colleagues. And so rather than try to persuade them and to spend her limited time and energy on an exercise in futility, instead she took her you know, considerable talents um, and her ability with words, and she turned them towards the public, right? And she decided to use her excellence to actually show the country what this court that she was sitting on was doing. Like, what a tremendous thing to do. Also something that's so Justice Sotomayor, right? We haven't seen that same behavior from some of the other justices in the court because that's not who they are, right? But it just helps us to imagine what are the possibilities this new justice could be and what might she choose to use her voice for. I'm reminded also of a wonderful anecdote I read recently about Polly Murray. Um, Lizzie, of course, you know that Polly Murray um, is the Black lawyer who is credited with... Um, Polly's Howard Law School note became uh, the foundation of the legal theory advanced in Brown v. Board of Education. Um, and that work also became the foundation of much of the sex discrimination work that Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, uh, used during her ACLU years, even including Polly Murray's name on the very first brief that uh, then Ruth Bader Ginsburg filed with the Supreme Court. Anyway, in 1971, uh, Polly Murray wrote a letter uh, to President Nixon uh, offering up Polly as a potential replacement for a recent Supreme Court vacancy that had just come open and saying, essentially, I'm sending in this application uh, to, you know, put to rest the notion that there's none of us out here who are qualified and who are available, because, of course, there was Polly Murray, who at the time identified as a woman, though Polly's gender identity is much more complex and today might be recognized as as transgender. But 
the reason I think of Polly Murray in this moment, Lizzie, is because something I read about Polly Murray recently was thinking about civil rights work as a relay race. And the only question is like, who are you going to take the baton from and who are you passing it off to? And I thought that was such a beautiful illustration when you think about the transformation of the Supreme Court over time, right? At this moment, to be sure, these three justices, these three women uh, will not have a majority vote, but this will not be the composition of the court forever, right? And that's the question is, where are we starting? And how will they leave the court, right, so that they will hand off the baton, hopefully, to future women, future Black women justices, um, who will be in a position to take that work and to build on it in a way uh, where maybe they could command a majority? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, as we know in this country, Supreme Court justices are there for, for quite some time, right? So even, like, not just thinking of, like, future nominees, but, like, kind of the future of, like, this nominee, right? I also, I just wanted to highlight because all like the different identities that people are able to bring to that work too, especially, I think partially because of COVID and partially just because of where we are as a society now, like talking like, or knowing about, um, you know, Justice Sotomayor's diabetes and how that's how she's bringing that kind of um, experience to what it is to live in a pandemic and what we need, like how we should be thinking about um, public policy. Um so not just, I mean, I think thinking about identity as expansively, right, as a woman, as a person of color, as, you know, a person from an immigrant background, like all these things that people are bringing and having a diversified bench generally and also at the, at the Supreme Court. So I do want to talk a little bit about President Biden and the lead up to this uh, announcement. So while this commitment from Biden has been met with a lot of enthusiasm, certainly in this room. Um, It's also been met with some pretty stale and offensive critique. Some people are concerned that Biden making this promise has undersold his nominee. The theory is that he opened up the nomination to be undermined by conservative talking points that considering gender or race of the nominee will necessarily mean compromising on the merits of the nominee. I want to dig into what being qualified even means. But first, what do you make of this point that President Biden's promise was the wrong move and somehow put the nominee at a disadvantage um, going into this nomination process? This strikes me as sort of classic blame shifting. We know, Lizzie, there's no world in which this nominee whenever her name is put forward as a Black woman, would not be undermined. And so now those who are undermining or who are unwilling to accept that any Black woman in the entire country could be qualified to sit on the Supreme Court, rather than confronting the racism and the sexism inherent in that worldview, instead they're pushing the blame onto President Biden for his announcement. And the truth is Ronald Reagan made a very similar announcement in 1980. He announced he was going to put a woman on the court. And President Trump made an announcement when Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed. He said, I will name a woman, right? But what was the difference? in both of those instances is what did a woman mean? A woman meant a white woman. They didn't have to say it. We all knew it because white is the default. White is not a choice. And nobody objected then. And the same folks who are saying that gender is an impermissible consideration now uh, did not object then. So what is the difference, right? Partially, it's of course the party the president belongs to, but more critically, right, it's race. It's the introduction of race And it's the very real fear of Black excellence and in particular Black women's excellence that we're seeing. We were going to see that fear now. We were going to see it later. And I don't think it's fair to put the blame blame on the president for the way in which he made the announcement as the thing that has generated the backlash, when in fact it is racism and patriarchy that has generated the backlash. Uh, Yeah, that is a great point. I think you're absolutely right about this Blackness. Because it's so unfortunate that still, I mean, even when I hear 
like a white woman like giving an interview or something. I know that if she's just identifying herself as a woman, I'm like, oh, she's probably white <laughs> because she didn't feel the need to say what her race was. And I feel like um, people of color just like they they know that that's an important thing to know, um, you know, and that colors their experiences so much that, you know, I always identify myself as a black woman. Um, and it's I do still feel like it's only or unless it's an issue about race right, or like an article about race, um, they're not going to identify the race of the people when they're white, right? And and they're only going to identify race when they're not. Yeah. No. And it's, I mean, I, the same could be true for other nominees. I mean, we, of course, have now both highlighted times when the president has specifically named the identity of the nominee he was looking for. But of course, it's no accident that 108 of the 115 justices that we've had so far have been white men. Those were criteria too. They just weren't said out loud. Race and sex obviously were criteria for those justices too. Otherwise you don't get 108 out of 115 all white men. That is so true. So I want to dig into this uh, presumption swirling around that a pool of candidates that only includes black women will not be qualified enough. So you and I both know that this kind of not qualified enough is kind of coded language that um, follows Black people wherever they go. It's racist. It's offensive. And it begs like a couple of questions that I'd like to dig in to with you. So first, kind of zooming out, what does it mean to be qualified to be on the Supreme Court? And second, why on earth would anyone believe that those standards, whatever they are, that a Black woman can't, can't possibly meet them? What does it mean to be qualified? And what does it mean to be qualified at this moment in time? Think about Justice William Howard Taft, who had been a president. Think about Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who came not only from a state court, but from an intermediate state appellate court, right? Not even a state Supreme Court. So historically, there were more paths that folks took to, that were all considered um, you know, possible routes to the Supreme Court. There was sort of not one path. And what we've seen in the last few years, and particularly with the entrenchment uh, of uh, a conservative majority in the court, is a real focus on a very, very narrow set of credentials. You have to be a sitting judge, Has to, most likely has to be not just a sitting judge, but a federal judge, not just a federal judge, but a federal appellate judge, not just a federal appellate judge, but a federal appellate judge sitting on the D.C. Circuit, which is considered sort of the second most prestigious court to the Supreme Court. Um, you must have clerked for a judge, but not just any judge. Again, we're looking for someone who's previously clerked in the Supreme Court. These are all, you know, relatively new sort of credentials that have been considered required and um, certainly have been true for the last, you know, handful of nominees that have been uh, confirmed, though not all, but much less so when you look back in history. Um, and particularly if you think about uh, the other women or people of color who've been nominated, who, of course, had less access to those kinds of opportunities in the first place. You know, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Thurgood Marshall, uh, you know, did not clerk on the United States Supreme Court because, of course, they couldn't have. Justice Thurgood Marshall, when we think about um, educational diversity, you know, the diversity of where folks went to law school, we've seen a real uh, narrowing to consideration of candidates essentially solely from Harvard and Yale, with Justice uh, Barrett being a notable exception. But still, this real entrenchment about what it means to be qualified and narrowing the pool to a very, very, very small number of criteria. Uh, and then even when we've done that, um, there still seems to be sort of surprise and outrage that there are still some Black women who <laughs> managed to jump through all yet. of those hoops. <laughs> you didn't exclude all of us yet. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's, that's so sad, but also funny. So what it means, as we've been talking about, what it means to be qualified to be on the Supreme Court changes all the time. 
But it's only more recently that we as a country have gone back to kind of openly discussing what ideological viewpoints we want to see on the court. So what makes someone qualified is subjective. But like, do you think that this kind of ideological kind of where you're, what you did in law school, where you're coming from, you know, whether you were part of the Federalist Society, do you think those are things that we should be openly discussing? Or do you think that should, we should be more looking for these kind of more neutral um, candidates to be on the court? Well, I guess I have a take issue with the question, Lizzie, because I think every candidate, right, has an ideology. Every person has an ideology. And so the only question then is whether it's openly stated or whether it's implicit, right? And this ties into something we were talking about earlier about whiteness and maleness as the default, right? What is the default and what is made explicit? And this question, Lizzie, immediately reminds me of another uh, amazing Black woman judge, Constance Baker Motley. And Constance Baker Motley uh, was the first Black woman to become a federal judge in 1966. And as terrific as that accomplishment is, you know, it's also a bit of a sore spot because originally uh, President Johnson had intended to nominate Judge Motley to uh, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals when Thurgood Marshall uh, became a Supreme Court justice. And he was met with really fierce resistance, including from his own party, uh, which again, I think really uh, just illustrates the particular oppression that Black women face that's different from the, you know, kinds of kinds of opposition that Black men face or that white women face with this very particular ire that's uh, directed at Black women and, and reserved for Black women was reserved for Judge Motley, you know. And instead of nominating her for the Second Circuit, he nominated her for the Southern District of New York, still, you know, a highly prestigious federal district court, but a far cry from the Second Circuit. And even then, you know, the ABA uh, declined to give her their highly qualified rating uh, because they said she didn't have enough trial experience. Now, Bear with me when you consider that Judge Motley had argued 10 cases in front of the United States Supreme Court and was one of the architects behind Brown v. Board of Education. And yet, can you imagine the ABA treating a white man candidate in a similar way? Of course not. No matter how many hoops Judge Motley had jumped through, somehow there was never quite enough. Another hoop was thrown up in her face. She didn't have time to be litigating in New York trial courts. She was arguing at the United States Supreme Court, right? She literally could not have been in two places at once, and yet that's what was thrown up at her. And then, of course, as soon as Judge Motley was confirmed, uh, we saw litigants begin to complain when their cases were assigned to her and suggesting that she couldn't be objective if the case involved discrimination and even going so far as to ask her to recuse herself from those cases. And Judge Motley wrote what is still today one of my uh, favorite statements. And I should just say, you know, it's rare for judges to explain why they do or don't grant recusal requests. But I think Judge Motley felt, uh, and rightly, I think, that it was important to explain herself. And what she said was, look, of course I have a perspective by virtue of having been a woman and by virtue of having, you know, been an attorney who represented plaintiffs in civil rights cases. However, if having a sex is a disqualification for uh, deciding sex discrimination cases, then no judge in this court could hear that because every judge has a sex, of course, right? Every judge has a sex. Every judge has a race. Every judge has these personal characteristics and has professional experience that's shaped the perspective they bring to the bench. And the only difference, of course, is that one perspective is considered you know, default or neutral and another perspective is considered skewed. All of us have lived experiences, have professional experiences that we bring to who we are. And given that that's the case, I think it's better to be open about it and to treat all candidates um, with the same degree of sort of, uh, you know, curiosity um, or investigation that we currently seem to reserve only for those who are not the default. Uh, I mean, that is so that is so right. I mean, obviously, we know because there is no black woman that can be in the spotlight without being hyper criticized both by 
you know, white people and people of color in the media, like, we're just, we have just been trained to be that it is okay to be hypercritical of women and hypercritical of Black people and hypercritical of Black women especially. So I noticed on the day Justice Breyer announced, there was a headline in the New York Times that read, Black women struggle to reach the elite class of potential Supreme Court nominees. I read the New York Times every day. So I checked the Times the next day. The headline was changed to, Black women face barriers in reaching the elite class of potential Supreme Court nominees. I did notice that the article was written by two uh, seemingly white white men. But the difference in those headlines is really telling. Like when, like that, ha- the first headline about... Um, Black women struggling was, you know, hours after Breyer announced. But it certainly did seem to put the blame on Black women. Like, Black women are just barely making it out there. Um, And the other one talks about, okay, like, what barriers are are we facing? But what are some of the barriers that you see still operating to prevent us from having an even more robust list of candidates than what's already out there? One of the reasons is something you touched on earlier, Lizzie, and that's this question about what our professional backgrounds are. And the fact that President Biden has, uh, for the first time really since uh, the civil rights era, nominated a significant number of candidates who have a background, a professional background, you know, that is uh, representing criminal defendants as a public defender, that is representing workers uh, who are facing workplace, uh, you know, discrimination or other kinds of workplace violations, who have been sort of representing the little guy on that side of the V. And so this is really the first moment that many of the uh, women judges in particular who've been nominated to the bench, I think, could imagine themselves have been nominated. I'm imagining this is the, maybe the first moment any of them might have thrown their names in the ring or applied or answered a call that said, you know, have you ever thought about becoming a judge? Because for so long, we've been taught that there is only one route to the bench. And that route excludes many of the choices that we've made, much of the work that we have felt called to do to sort of live out our personal and professional truths. Yeah, I mean, I think even as you were saying that, I'm like, how do you get <laughs> nominated to the bench? Like, is it that, should you, are you still supposed to be like writing a letter to the president? Like, is that the plan? Like, I think in some ways, like both kind of at the federal bench, but in other ways, I feel like sometimes we don't know, like we just don't have that experience. We don't come from generations of lawyers um, that tell us like, okay, like this is what you do. But do we, are like, what are the barriers now or what should we be doing to break down barriers for those people that do want to get um, to the bench, whether it's by being a federal public defender and moving up that way or, um, you know, going the more traditional route. Well, I mean, again, I guess I just have to push back on the question a little bit, which is this notion that we only should be reaching the people who see themselves on the bench, right? I think we actually want to be drawing on people who never thought they would be a judge. I know for many folks who've done criminal defense work, um, you know, even clerking for a judge can be a really uh, morally and ethically loaded activity because by doing that work, you are, you know, participating in the mechanism and the machinery of incarceration and of sentencing people, something that folks on the criminal defense side obviously have dedicated themselves um, to fighting and to opposing. And so the notion then that you one might become the person in the rope who is, in fact, sentencing people to jail is quite a cognitive leap. And it's one I think we really need people to make because we want a variety of perspectives represented. But so I don't think we just want to go after the people who want to be judges in some ways. I think we want to go after the people who don't think they want to be judges and ask them, like, why not, right? What is it What is it that you see that, that's not right to you? Is it, you know, is it who you see? Is it what they've done? Is it the decisions that you're seeing coming in at the bench? And then, like, can you be part of the change then? Like, wouldn't you want your case to be judged by someone like you? Um, and it's really hard to answer that question with a no. Yeah, I mean, that is a... <laughs> 
that is a great point. <laughs> you run into people that are like, no, I'd never want that job. <laughs> like, oh, why not? Right. And like, are the reasons why not things that we should be changing about the system rather than um, just being like, okay, well, then I guess it's not for you. Um, so we talked a little bit about the power of this representation, right? I think that this representation is going to do some, is going to help in some ways, but not others. So how, I mean, when we think about kind of the future, what uh, what do we think we can hang on this kind of new nomination and this person rising to this level? Um, and what do we think are the limits of this representation? Well, certainly we know representation alone is not enough. I mean, there are certainly Black judges, even Black women judges, whose decisions and whose actions, you know, have really not furthered sort of equity and fairness for all people, but instead have sort of, uh, you know, entrenched um, systems of inequality. And so uh, certainly, um, you know, identity alone is not going to be enough. And in fact, there are, you know, are always some people who choose to align themselves with existing systems of power rather than to really, you know, question and disrupt those. When you look at the ages of some of the nominees who've been, uh, you know, who've been discussed, you know, you know, 51, 45, you know, these are people who can serve for hopefully many, many decades, right? What can they do while they're holding the baton and who, who can they hand it off to in the future? And I like to think that, you know, these are justices who will be handing the baton to people today who fall into exactly this category we're talking about, people who may never have thought they could be a federal judge, right? But by virtue of this nomination and of what the court will become, um, can begin to imagine themselves in that role. Do you think that's inevitable, that that will happen, that we'll see kind of the kind, the, the kind of trickle up of like having more pe- Black people in powerful positions will just ultimately lead? I mean, like, I know we're seeing much more diversity in law schools than we used to see. Um, so do we think that's like naturally going to happen? That's an inevitable um, progress or... Are like are we still kind of in a precarious state where we could actually have you know the next generation like thirty years from now being on a like two black women just like you and me being on a podcast being like yeah still assume that I'm the intern or the court reporter. Thirty years is really not much time when you think about certainly the history of the United States, but even the history of the Supreme Court, which I think is you know somewhat over two hundred years old. Um, and so, no, nothing is inevitable. I mean, we're we're constantly trying to improve this country that we've founded. And, you know, we know based on our history uh, that none of this is inevitable. None of this change is going to happen. No one is going to hand it to us. And we're going to keep fighting. I think what, what feels different in this moment is a real, you know, a real possibility that we could continue to fight. President Biden's campaign promise to nominate a Black woman, you know, was not inevitable, uh, it was uh, a result of many things, including the tremendous, tremendous political power that Black women yielded during this election cycle, which was not inevitable, which was the result of blood, sweat, and tears put in by many Black women, you know, over many generations to increase access to the franchise. And so none of that was inevitable, but they did lead us to this moment. And I think, uh, you know, the, the possibility of a Black woman justice creates, you know, yet another foundation for more work to be done. It creates just another layer of scaffolding. What can we do when we've ascended to this next level that we can't do where we are today? Before we wrap up, I really want to get just like your your hot takes, your quick takes on um, some of these judges on the short list. So Judge Kintaji Brown-Jackson. All right, Judge Jackson is definitely the front runner, and it's easy to see why. She's a former clerk for Justice Breyer herself, so there's sort of a natural, uh, 
you know, synergy there and thinking about her to replace Justice Breyer's seat. But the thing that excites me most about Judge Jackson really is her background as a public defender. And I've talked already about, I think, the importance of having that perspective on the bench. And um, we have not had a lawyer with real criminal defense experience on the bench since Justice Thurgood Marshall. And, you know, just what an amazing bringing it full circle to come from the first Black man bringing that experience and now the first Black woman to bring that experience, uh, which would be the only experience represented on the court today. All right. Leandra Kruger. Okay, again, professional diversity. (laughs) Justice Kruger currently sits in the California Supreme Court, so we get somebody from a state court perspective, also served in the SG's office. So just really exciting. I will note she's also among the youngest of the names that have been floated. I think she's just 45 years old, um, which, again, brings a different kind of both longevity to the bench, but just life experience in terms of what what does her day-to-day life look like? Judge Juliana Michelle Childs. So Judge Childs, again, not a Harvard or Yale graduate, a graduate of two state institutions, public schools, um, and from South Carolina. Also someone who's primarily served as a district judge, nominated to the D.C. Circuit, but I think that's been on hold while she's under consideration for SCOTUS. So I don't know that we've had somebody come directly from a trial court versus an appellate court. Certainly none of the current justices. Um, And I'd be curious to go back and think when's the last time that happened. But I think having a justice with real experience uh, as a trial judge would inform so much of what the justices do, which is in some sense, you know, second-guessing decisions that trial judges have had to make. Sherilyn Eiffel. Sherilyn Eiffel, my former boss at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, uh, cannot sing her praises enough. Um, But again, what would it mean to put a civil rights lawyer on the bench? We haven't had one since Justice Ginsburg. And of course, the first one we had was Thurgood Marshall. LDF is the organization that he founded in 1957 and led for so many years. So what would it mean to have our first woman uh, be today's president and director of council of LDF? Incredible to think about. And the last one, Nancy G. Abudu. Okay, I know I said the LDF candidates are my favorite, but I have to hold a spot in my heart for the former legal director of the ACLU of Florida, Nancy Abudu. Um, the thing about her, I think that would be so incredible, is her uh, background as a voting rights lawyer, both uh, with the National ACLU and then with the ACLU of Florida, at a time when our democracy feels so precarious. And we've seen President Biden choose voting rights lawyers for some lower courts. Let's bring some of that energy to the Supreme Court. Uh, thank you so much for engaging in that, Ria. I just feel like everyone wants to know, like, your take, right? And obviously, we have a lot more work to do to get Black women into more positions of power and more people generally of diverse backgrounds into onto the federal bench. And I'm so grateful that you're thinking about this and to talk with you about this and to really celebrate uh, this moment in our history. And incredible to take time out of my day to celebrate so much joy and so much excellence among Black women. So thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate your feedback. Until next week, try to walk on the sunny side of the street.